I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We are no longer beholden to what other people think of us or the borrowed lives that came through our culture or parents. It is our journey and the compass is within. And the breakthrough from being really beholden to other people and borrowed ideas to an authentic life is a life of direct spiritual connection. And that connection is a conversation with God, force, the loving, guiding source of life. came across you quite recently because I listened to your TED talk on a spiritual child and I was like blown away and I just thought this was absolutely amazing and I really wanted to get in contact with you because I felt that your story would just resonate perfectly with like our audience and give those that that inspiration I think one of the things that really stuck with me through through that process was that kind of feeling of empathy as to that shared journey that you've been through and like the challenges that we also went through as well I also listened to you on the ritual podcast a while ago and I yeah just found that episode absolutely fascinating I've subsequently picked up your your book The Awakened Brain and yeah I couldn't put it down it was a it was a great read so I, I just was really encouraged to jump on a call with you and, and share your wisdom with our audience. So here we are. Peter, I'm so grateful to connect with you and share our stories. You know, I think that the road to becoming a family is far too little discussed. You know, there are so many sacred paths, and no matter how you get there, it is a pilgrimage. It is a complete ego death. It is a discovery of a love that's greater than we've ever known. It is a spiritual, it's a spiritual pilgrimage. And it's very little discussed. In fact, it saddens me. It really, it makes me very sad when I hear people say, did you get what you want? Did you want a boy or a girl? <laughs> and sort of speaking of children for their, you know, parts and pieces. Oh, he has great hair, you know, a little chubby, you know, like it's, it's, it, it's so far from the way that I think as parents, we discover, we truly find our, our spiritual children. So I'm thrilled to discuss this. I guess before we dive into it, let's maybe start and give our audience just a little bit of a background as to who you are and what you do. So for 20 years, I've been a professor at Columbia University in New York, where I've studied the science of spirituality and its impact on the rest of our lives, both from a well-being and mental health perspective, you know, finding things like a strong personal spiritual life is 80 
85% protective against addiction, against completed suicide. You know, there's, there's really just a tidal wave changing impact on our health and wellness. And equally, a strong personal spiritual path leads us to a different type of life, you know, a different lens into the reality of being and who we are to one another as souls on earth, as really trail angels for one another, helping each other along the path. So this has been my life's work, and it it really came to me very early in my career. Since then, I've used MRI studies, genotyping studies, qualitative studies, epidemiological studies. I've looked at this through every lens that science has to offer. And the findings are always the same. There is nothing as profoundly game-changing in our lives as to realize our natural birthright of innate spiritual spiritual awareness. I call it awakened awareness. Yeah, like the birthright bit is is definitely, it resonated with me. Um, having suffered quite badly from depression in kind of 2017, 2018, and a bit of 2019, it was a horrendous time. But I do, like, we'll talk about it later on in the podcast, but I do definitely resonate with your viewpoint about it's two sides of one coin depression and awakening is but two sides of the same coin and the viewpoint that you have in respect to the red and yellow doors I'm really encouraged to dive into that but I guess before we do I'm interested to start at the very beginning so like how can we use the lens of science to identify the threads of spirituality and I guess like have impact in health well-being and also the the field of science. So early on, you know, when what I had was a hammer. That hammer was epidemiology. And so in the late 90s and early 2000s, I looking out the airplane window at the thousands of people in our world, you can see patterns, patterns of where we live, who keeps the lights on. Well, the same is true with epidemiology. We can see patterns. And what we saw was when there was a strong personal spiritual life right at the window of risk. So in emerging adulthood, in the bridge to the second half of life, at times of crisis or loss, there was an extraordinarily game-changing process when suffering was engaged as the doorway to spiritual awakening. I mean, absolutely game-changing. So to give you an example, if you look at someone who's 26 years old and says, my spiritual life is tremendously important to how I see life, that person is 250%, two and a half times more likely to have suffered in the past 10 years to get to that place of spiritual awareness. Our traditions talk about things like the road of trials, the dark night of the soul. Every tradition talks about the struggle and the occlusion where we cannot see our own hand before we get into a much more radiant light. That's a human process, and it's one that is bringing us into tandem with a world, with a universe that is spiritually alive, spiritually guiding and abundant. But we have to go through the journey. You know, we can't do it for our kids. We can't do it for one another. We can walk with each other and we can share our own stories. But everyone has to cross this bridge. And it it, it really hurts. It's very painful. It's lonely. It's full of dread. I mean, I can remember going through this process myself and feeling it's almost like there's a boogeyman coming up on my left shoulder. There's this horrible sense, oh, no, it's not coming Ugh, this dread. And then it seized me, you know, it was this darkness and this anxiety. 
and it was a horrible feeling. It's the feeling of major depression. But everyone at some point has that experience, and it yields, when we allow it to, into a deep look what our lives are really about and what life itself is, is intended to be. So it's really an initiation. And if we say yes to it, we have a developmental depression where the development of the depression prepares us to awaken. We have, in times of trauma, post-traumatic spiritual growth. We can take the worst moments, and for many people, they were the past couple of years, and really have a personal and maybe even collective renaissance of spiritual awakening. So that's where we are right now. Yeah, I guess like one of the things that really caught my attention when diving into some of the work that you've done was firstly that contrast between spirituality versus religion, because, you know, like 30% of millennials notify as being spiritual but not religious, which was an intriguing thing because kind of that's probably where I stand. I'm a lot more spiritual as to the journey, I would say, and the and the ultimate you know journey of life rather than kind of being aligned to a specific religion. But then equally, looking at some of the challenges that we see within the world, there's a lot of nuance and data about epidemics of isolation, or, um, mental health crises, etc. But then some of this, the data that falls behind your work, for example, the 62% decrease in suicide, does it jump to 80% if it's a shared experience? Yes, exactly. So uh, you, your point is very important, that spirituality and religion are not the same thing. Spirituality and religion go hand in hand for about 70% of people. They say, my personal transcendent experience, my ultimate sense of reality, my capacity for deep love is held in my faith tradition, whether I am Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Catholic. And 30% of people in post-industrial global culture would say, I am spiritual, like yourself, what you just said, Peter, but not necessarily religious. And that number is higher amongst uh, younger cohorts. So, for instance, Gen Z is more than 30%. But, you know, those who are um, Gen X are less than 30%. That's a changing demographic. What is the difference between spirituality and religion? Well, if you ask a scientist, I'll refer you to a twin study. We look at twins raised together, twins raised apart, and can determine the extent to which any human capacity is inborn versus environmentally transmitted. And it turns out that religion is 100% environmentally transmitted. It is a gift of our community, our parents or grandparents. It is a way of living to join a community, to read sacred texts, to engage in transcendent practices within that tradition that is an environmentally, 100% environmentally transmitted, if you will, opportunity onto our spiritual core. The spiritual core, what is spirituality? That is innate. We are born as we have two eyes, two ears, and a nose. We are born naturally spiritual beings. How much so? Well, by way of comparison, our temperament, whether we are laid back or more front-footed, whether we are introverts or extroverts, our temperament is about half inborn and half environmentally formed. Um, we can practice ways of pushing ourselves to be more outgoing if we want to be. We can practice ways to relax if we're more high strung. 
half innate, half environmentally formed. The capacity through which we experience spiritual life is one-third innate. It is our birthright. But two-thirds environmentally formed, cultivated, nurtured, means that for an innate capacity, that is a great deal of choice that we bring onto the cultivation of our spiritual core. For people who say, I turn to God for guidance in times of difficulty, people who perhaps cultivate their natural transcendent relationship with their higher power through prayer, that is one way. Other people meditate. It turns out that service and right action develops our spiritual brain every bit as much. So we have, all of us, a natural spirituality, but it's our choice to cultivate it, and it makes a tremendous difference in our lives, whether we do or not. Yeah, definitely. I think from my own experience, um, having gone through such dark periods of time, there's a there's a quote by Ray Darlow that I resonate with, which is pain plus reflection equals progress. And that period of reflection when I look back at those moments in time that we went through um like I was pretty close to suicide and it was um it's really challenging for both myself and also my family and friends around me and you know to kind of get me back to from from like that that broken shell of a person to who I am today it's interesting because I, like I went down a totally different pathway coming out the other side so like I'd gone through working in consultancy for a long period of time and then shifted to writing kids books starting podcasts starting my own business about um purpose and helping businesses find that kind of more cultivating of longer term goals and aspirations and i feel like i'm still on this journey and it's something that i want to embrace for the rest of my life and because i i think that yeah like the challenges they're there to provide us wisdom and guidance if, if we're willing to take on board those lessons and you know I think um, from the work that you do I'm fascinated to to dive into I guess the process of how do you go about like studying this this sphere of sp- spirituality and I guess like the awakened brain within within science and touching specifically on like the work that you've done and and the conclusions that you've been able to draw. For a very long time and probably I'd say Peter it was 15 years we had very good data that personal spiritual life with or without religion and across all faith traditions if someone is religious. So this is something deep and core and fundamental to who we are, whether I am Hindu, Catholic, Jewish, spiritual, not religious, a strong personal spiritual life was a profound, actually the most robust protective factor against all forms of suffering, addiction, depression, suicide, the diseases of despair that really now blanket post-industrial culture. We knew that. But the field didn't quite yet know how to integrate it. And people who really had yet to explore their own spiritual path had a hard time absorbing that finding, you know, how to be helpful with it. And where things really changed, there were two points. The first was when there was a breakthrough in MRI studies when we were able to show that the extraordinary protective benefits of spiritual life against depression were mirrored in the brain, that those people to recover from depression, as you've just so generously, open-handedly shared, through an awakening, through an awakening of their natural spiritual life, those people showed a thick cortex 
across regions of the brain. The cortex is processing power. And in particular, the regions of the, if you will, stronger spiritual brain were in perception, reflection, orientation, which means, you know, we could have the same family, the same house, the same friends, and it all looks different looking through a strong, awakened brain. The other thing we found is that the regions that were thick through recovery of dep- from depression in spiritual awakening were regions that were not thick but thin in people with recurrent major depression, which seemed to suggest that depression is a knock at the door for spiritual awakening and we must say yes and do the precise type of reflection of which you speak, Peter. We, we, we don't just lay back and, if you will, psychologically, you know, eat ice cream and watch TV. We, we, we need to reflect. What is my purpose? And I don't mean, you know, at the level of which department do I want to move to next. I mean, in the sense that you tackled it and really engaged ultimate purpose. What is my contribution here on earth? And what is my walk so that when I am exiting my body on the other side, I feel that my footprint will have been one of love, of contribution, of bettering our world. That is hardwired, body, mind, and soul. We've got to do that work. If it is left latent and undone, there's a slow simmering, you know, it's often called dysthymia, just a sense of everything is not great. How are you? I'm okay. So the bridge that crosses to a purpose-driven life is a bridge that is foundationally one of spiritual awakening. Because it's not enough to say, what's my next half step? It is, what are my next five huge bounding leaps to be the type of person that I want to be as a soul on earth, as an emanation of life in the big sense, purpose, capital P. Yeah. It's like speaking again from my own experience, you know, before I was ill, I would say that my viewpoint was about um, kind of traditional going up a career ladder, progressing in whatever profession I was working in at the time, and then coming out the other side. It shifted very much more towards a pursuit of happiness and a pursuit of impact. Like I read things such as uh, there's work about regrets of the dying and mm. I didn't want to live a life of regret. I wanted to live a life of in- impact. And how I ultimately will drive that is is hopefully done through the test of time. So when I look back, I can kind of see progression on a personal level and professional level on a year-on-year basis. And, you know, that slow simmering progress is something that I appreciate a lot more. And, you know, the presence that is like family and children and, you know, having having those blessings and trying to, what I'm trying to do at the moment is intertwine all of my interests into ultimately a cultivation of a life that for me provides um, income for my family and also provides happiness and impact in respect to the things that I do. So that kind of change, I think it, it only happened because of the turbulent moments that I went through. And had I not gone through that, I would have been a very different person than I am today. But equally, you know, I look back with, it's strange, but almost like, thankful to have gone through that process because um you know I, I learned so much about myself and also about equally the road that 
I want to travel going forward. And, you know, when you talk about like the thickening of the neural cortex, I was, I was really interested in how you ultimately, you know, actually why did high spiritual people at high familiar risk uh, with depression have a greater thicken cortical thickening than, than those um, at a low risk of depression? Because I wondered if, if there was something that almost made me more, at risk of depression and I've, I've never really been able to pick that part apart so I wanted to ask you the, the specific Peter, question. that's perhaps the most beautiful part of this finding is that you, you have good read by the way you read the fine print um, <laughs> of that article I, it, it's quite remarkable but it is true of all of us that as we recover from depression through a deepening what is life showing me now what does my higher power ask do I feel my higher power by my side Life emerges as loving and holding, guiding, and as never leaving us alone. That breakthrough that we are not alone in the universe, that we don't fall through an existential black hole or abyss, but that we are buoyant. And that our choices are not made in, if you will, a sealed box of our head, but that we have an open system brain to receive guidance, whether it's from one another, I would say spirit or consciousness through one another, or directly through our higher power, life, the deepest nature of life itself. This realization, this breakthrough is all of ours. And with it comes, if you will, a better antenna, a strengthening of our antenna, our awakened brain. It's all of ours. And still it is the case, as you point out, that people who are even more open, even more sensitive, these are our artists, our, if you will, poets, musicians, priests, rabbis, imams, social innovators. These are people of enormous perception who are open. The more open we are, the more that we might perceive and detect the deeper nature of life. And still the more open the window, the more that the pain and the suffering gets in. So it is absolutely the case that people who are more at risk for depression are also more primed for a profound spiritual awakening and its reflection in the thickening of the awakened brain, in the cortex of the awakened brain, a strong antenna. It's actually a very beautiful finding. So suffering is not for naught when it is organic and natural. I don't mean we poke ourselves or put pins in our eyes. I mean, when it is a natural depression, it is an awakening. It is, you know, wake up. You have a bigger life. You have a deeper seat of being. And from that, as you put gently and steadily will come a life in which the authority is within. I would say my word is God within, but it could be spirit, truth, internal compass. You know, when you have the type of journey that you've shared, Peter, very often we are no longer beholden to what other people think of us or the borrowed lives that came through our culture or parents. It is our journey and the compass is within. And the breakthrough from being really beholden to other people and borrowed ideas to an authentic life is a life of direct spiritual connection. And that connection is a conversation with God, force, the loving, guiding source of life. Yeah, like I guess like one of the things that really as well intrigued me was, um, you know, I remember you talking about honor my teacher, that like practice of, of reawakening. Like I'd love to go through that exercise because I know that 
there will be people listening to this that have had similar journeys to my own. This is kind of one of the reasons I was really uh, um, encouraged to jump on and have a conversation with you, not just for the sake of walking through some of my own experiences, but equally to provide some solace, some uh, awareness, some inspiration for others that, you know, A, you're not alone, but B, like when you actually dig into some of this stuff, it's fascinating and, you know, you can actually learn and grow through pain and suffering rather than kind of let it over overwhelm you, I guess. So like if you'd, like to take a moment maybe to walk us through that exercise that'd be fantastic thank you peter before i do this exercise i like to thank my teacher dr gary weaver who taught me this at a time where it was of enormous impact in my own life and the work i'm doing with people and so i share this forward as a gift from dr gary weaver i'm going to invite you to clear out your inner space Close your eyes if you'd like and open your inner chamber with five breaths. I invite you to set in your inner chamber, set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you may invite anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. Anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that is so much more than anything you may have or not have, anything you might have done or not done, your true eternal higher self, and ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power, whatever word is yours, however you know, your higher power and ask them if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting there right now, what do they need to share? What do they need to tell you now? What do you need to know? And when you're ready, I invite you back. This is your counsel and they are always there for you. Who shows up may change depending on where you are in your journey and you can ask them what is on your mind. Your awakened awareness through which you engage a transcendent relationship, those who truly have your best interest in mind, the spirit of life in and through those who love us, your true inner higher self, eternal sacred consciousness, and of course, the highest power. This is your neurodocking station, your awakened brain. And you can always invite counsel. No one can ever take this away. No bad teachers, no bad experiences. No one can take this away. And this is your greatest deep seat of being, your awakened brain. 
It's absolutely beautiful. I, I I love that exercise because for me, it it makes me think as to the pathway that I'm on at the moment and it makes that kind of period of calm just come to light. And I know that the road that I'm on is the right road to be on. And I know that like, it's almost akin to Matthew McConaughey's view on always be chasing. Like my view is chasing who I am in five years time. And when I get there, I want to chase the next guy five years down the road. And I, I want to hold myself accountable to whatever I do to make sure that I am living a life true to myself, true to my family and a life of real meaning. Because I guess like having gone through such a close call to suicide, it was the greatest awakening ever, how finite life is and equally how we have a real opportunity in our lives to not be paralyzed by comparison paralysis, but more so to be true to who we really are. And, you know, if that involves some real, like, deep challenge and deep reflection and time, I'm willing to give myself the time to find out who that person is. That is a deep spiritual path. The image that came to my mind as you shared of your journey was that of a deep, thick forest with pathways and challenges and exquisite views and enormous strength and inner compass. And I think, Peter, you contrast awakened awareness, which is this open journey on a spiritual path, to its opposite, which is really a quite poisonous, very insidious. It's in the air and water of our culture radical achieving awareness where our lives are measured. They're measured against how we did yesterday and tomorrow. They're measured against other people. They're measured on borrowed metrics. Achieving awareness, you know, we, can, we can look in the MRI and we can see the contrast between the very same person engaging in achieving awareness versus awakened awareness. And achieving awareness I've got to have it. I've got to have, you know, another 10,000 pounds. I've got to get, you know, not a one bedroom, a two bedroom. What have I got to get? I have to have, you know, X number of followers to be worthy. It's an external marker. Our lives are beholden to metrics. And they are metrics that are borrowed. They are metrics that are used across people as if you were measuring, you know, the height and weight of items that are purchased in the market. Well, achieving awareness runs a certain circuit in the brain. It's the I've got to have it craving brain. I've got to have that next promotion. I've got to get that internships. I've got to get him, her, them to say yes. I've got to have it runs the insulin striatum, which is the addicted brain. Radical, unyielding, achieving awareness, the world of measurement. Am I better or worse? Do I have more or less money, hits on my social media? compared to the next person. That way of looking at life, literally, I've got to have it, I've got to have it, runs the insulin striatum, the addiction centers. And it's the same seat of neuroaddiction that goes ding, 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 and hooks onto drugs and alcohol or internet gambling. It is one addicted stance. We have a choice. We can see that our culture is insidiously doing that and say, I don't choose to live that way. It is a road 
to infinite misery. It is a road of recurrent dissatisfaction, dysthymia, and if you're fortunate, a breakthrough depression that says, no, this is not filling my soul. This does not complete my life. The world of chronic comparison, what does? We can invite that same person still in the MRI to shift their conversation with life to one of awakened awareness, to one of a road, a journey of ultimate purpose, of meaningful contribution. And then the story moves from I've got to have it to, you know, I just didn't get what I wanted. I applied to medical school and didn't get in. I applied to four jobs and got none of them. The one I loved said, no, they don't want to marry me. Um, It hurts. And I'm feeling really low and I feel like a huge loser and I feel without and empty. But then I, I saw light in the leaves and I knew that life has a plan for me and I will contribute in the way I am intended. Or, you know, he really broke my heart. We went out for three years. We were going to get married. I had an engagement ring and he called it off at the last minute. I felt humiliated. I felt worthless. I got deeply depressed. But then, you know, sitting at my family table, my parents, my grandparents, my grandfather led us in a prayer and I, I felt this deep love of my family and I felt God's love, my higher power, the love of life. And I thought, love is built into the universe. I'll love again. That radical reshaping of meaning through awakened awareness is one of breakthroughs. It's one of surprises. It's one where we don't live a borrowed path and our lives can't be measured. There's no metric to compare our life to someone else because it's entirely an authentic, sincere, unique creation. May we do one more practice, actually? Yeah, for sure. Great. I'm going to invite, once again, uh, five breaths to clear out our inner space. Close your eyes if you'd like. I invite you to think of a time where you wanted something so badly. That red door was yours. It was a job. It was a promotion. It was him or her or them to say yes. It was yours. And you did everything to close the deal. You, A plus B plus C, tactically researched it, strategically were on. That red door was fairly 99% yours. So you go for it, expecting, grabbing the handle, pulling open the red door, but it's, it's stuck. And you can't believe it's stuck because you had done everything right. You, it wasn't fair. You might be shocked. How could that be, you might be angry and kick the red door or depressed. Why did I not get it? What's wrong with me? But only because that red door was stuck. You had no choice. You turned 40, 80, 130 degrees. And there, there was a wide open yellow door, a splendid open yellow door. You might've said you didn't know there were, there were yellow doors, that yellow doors exist. You'd never thought of yellow doors or seen them. But that yellow door, you crossed over the threshold and you met someone more right for you. You found work of deep meaning that felt fluid and snowballed It felt so alive. You made a contribution that made you feel significant as one of love and giving on earth. There was something on the other side of the yellow door that was not what you had wanted and it was not what you had planned. 
it was better and far more right for you. Crossing the yellow door has everything to do with who you are and where you are today. So I invite you now to step back and think of that stuck red door and the hairpin turn leading to the yellow door. Was anyone there at that hairpin turn? Uh, Someone you met for two minutes at a party or a coffee shop who told you something from their own path, their own life, that was directive towards the yellow door? Or was there someone, a counselor, a parent, a grandparent, a dear friend who for the first time shared a story of their hairpin turn? Was there a trail angel pointing to a yellow door? And as you now step way back, stuck red door, hairpin turn, trail angel, and wide open yellow door leading to who you are and where you are today. How really are our lives built? Are we radically narrowly makers of our path? Or are our hopes and dreams based on information from today backwards, just the past, history? And could we be more truly discoverers of our journey, where what we get is not what we want? It is far more splendid. It is surprising. It is more right. It is more true for our soul's code. And finally, stepping way back on your road of life, where is the force in and through all life, the source, perhaps your higher power that is in us, through us, and among us? Is the source the loving, guiding force of life in the open yellow door and the shut red door? Is the great force of life in the trail angel and our openness our capacity to have an open heart, an open mind, be an open system in dialogue with all life. And when you're ready, I invite you back. Is it possible you've been on a spiritual path all along? Yeah, I think, <laughs> again, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that exercise. I think what really makes me remember, I guess, these steps that have got me to where I am today, kind of key moments in time, like I guess when I wasn't happy in my mid-20s and I wanted more from life, I went and saw a little bit of travel. I ended up traveling for like two years and trying to figure out what it really was that I wanted from life. And, and and that brought so much wisdom and I guess openness to my culture and people and empathy, I guess, for others. And I guess also when I went through my period with depression and anxiety, I, I was really fortunate to see um, people from for cognitive behavioral therapy and one lady stood out for me. She was called Jan Littleman. And um, when I saw her, you know, like the, because they, they always grade you at the very beginning, right? They grade you as to how you're feeling at that point in time in a hope that they can bring those numbers down and kind of support you through it as you talk through your experiences. And when I went through that, I guess like a lot of the beginning was pain and like understanding. I just didn't understand how. I'd end up where 
I was at that point in time. I didn't understand how, you know, I came so close to taking my own life. And equally looking at her wisdom in respect to like she encouraged me to just pick up a pen and write down my experiences and they that turned into two children's books um and then likewise when the pandemic hit I listened to people around me and their unique experiences and many people like my wife's a doctor and many didn't really have a platform to talk about the realities that they had gone through and that led me down the route of podcasting. I like I just I didn't know the guy at the time. I jumped on and our producer Max, I just asked him, like, do you want to do this episode? Let, let's see where it takes us. And like podcasting has been so instrumental for my own growth and like awakening because I get the opportunity to chat to a plethora of different people from backgrounds and uh, and take learning and wisdom from them in hope to not only help me along my own journey, but also help others. I know people will listen to this and I know that they'll have experienced similar things to myself. And equally, I hope that they are equally inspired from what I'm getting from this conversation as, as to what, yeah, I hope they're inspired by this conversation. Hope that they can take some solace in it and hope they understand. You're so generous. I want to highlight something you said, which is pain is not a dead end. Pain is a beginning. Pain says the way I've been living inside, you know, it's not the fault of everyone around me, my spouse, my kids, my job, the way I've been living inside, I have outgrown. I am a prisoner of my way of being inside. It is an opening. I'm swinging open the door. I'm saying it hurts in here. I'm too caged in. I feel unrealized. I feel unfulfilled. I feel empty. I feel worthless. That is a signal, dink, 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 of a way of being that I have outgrown. So the pain is the beginning. It is the ignition of a journey. And you said yes and took it. And what a blessing. In your case, you could travel the world. Well, if I'm at home and I can't travel the world, I have kids, I have a husband, I can still go on a journey. I can talk to people at the coffee shop. I can read journals of people who've gone through struggle to illumination. There's so much that each and every one of us can do without money and without moving that is a quest. And you are opening the door in your generous story and saying pain is the trailhead of a quest. And you don't know where you're going, but it is held and guided and loved. That is the quest, even when it hurts. Talking about when it hurts, I guess, like, you know, I'm not unique in these experiences. You've you've had, the, I guess, the fortune of working in places like Unit 6 and the experiences you got from working in mental health hospitals and working with um, people going through in a trauma how did that interlink with your convergence towards the awakened brain and equally like what did you get from those experiences with those individuals that kind of helped you on your own journey to where you are today because I've heard you talk previously about little t and capital t and going upstairs not and I actually found these stories fascinating because I thought you know like these are people in real depths of despair and they're being open enough to provide you wisdom and care at their most difficult moment in time. Like, I'd love for you to talk about those experiences because they're amazing. And they're deeply aware. 
patients in extreme acute suffering of the deeper nature of their suffering, which I think was part of their gift, you know, to us. So I'll, I'll share with you, as, as you say, Peter, you are certainly not alone. I think your story is the paradigm of what most of the time depression is. It is a knock at the door for a quest. And what I saw on Unit 6 was people who came in in terrible pain with major depression, major depression plus anxiety or addiction, and really, you know, only got psychopharm. They didn't get an invitation to a quest. They didn't get what you described, which was a type of therapy that said, listen to your experience. What is your experience showing you? What is, you know, we're the instrument for learning, for guidance, for awakening. And they would then be back two months later in equal pain. And some of these people had been in and out over a dozen times. This was pre-digital. There were files that were six inches thick. And when those you know were too unwieldy, a second file was started. And the only data I could see there was that we were not helping them. So I listened to the patients and I heard things like this, you know, Dr. Miller, could you come here? And these requests were often ones of great secrecy. Could you, no, I mean here, like stand behind the door and hiding with me. So we're cramped in the corner behind the door. And the gentleman says, I want you to understand something. You see, Dr. Miller, there's the world, little t, and then there's the world, big T. And little t, well, that's the world where I go to work and, you know, my name is, shall we say, uh, Brian. And the thing is, when it gets just too painful in the world, little t, I go to the world, big T, where Mother Mary is my mother and I am Jesus Christ. So he was explaining to me that the world, which is, I would say, we're a point and we're a wave, the world of, you know, daily work and where we see at first past each other as little atoms bumping into each other, you know, is only one level of reality. And there's equally the world, which is sacred, which in which we are all sacred beings, emanations of, of the most sacred. So he was right. There is the world and the world. But what he was also saying was that we are aware when we're living at the level of material expression or at the level of sacred consciousness. For him, it hurt too much to live at the world of material expression where people had harmed him, where people had damaged his heart, where he felt abandoned and abused. And so he was sort of slipping his hand on the gear shift and speaking as if he was walking in the material world while he was in the transcendent world. It was a choice. He was telling me it hurts too much to live amongst people who violate the precepts of love and care, and I go into the unit of reality, but call it the daily. So that was quite a lesson. That was quite a lesson. Of course, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He was shot up with a great amount of drugs. He knew what was going on. Another woman, woman, um, she had been 17 times in our inpatient unit. And after really a realization that whatever treatment was being offered on unit six was unhelpful. She was being discarded. She was being sent upstate, which really means to a long-term state facility from which she, she may have never left. Dr. Miller, will you come here? And all it takes, you know, was, was the awareness that someone wanted to hear and walk with them at the spiritual level. 
can you come here? So come here again was not step into my office and sit down by my desk. Come here was exit my office, walk down the hall, go into the kitchen under blaring, you know, fluorescent lights and linoleum table. And even that wasn't private enough. No, I mean way here. And she brought me into the back pantry. So we were standing by the pots and pans, which was a statement of how secluded, how hidden her request needed to be on the inpatient unit. Dr. Miller, will you pray with me? She felt unsafe, unwelcome, that it was somehow not within the way we do things on the unit to pray out loud, to pray in her room, to pray in my office. So we were standing by the pots and pans. She happened to be Catholic and she brought out her rosary. She said, tomorrow I go upstate and I may never come back. Will you pray with me that God looks over me? And she starts to pray her rosary and I'm with her with full heart. And then she says, no, Dr. Miller, you pray, you know, your way, the way you learned. And I prayed my way. We went back and forth. And in her prayer, she said, dear God, please look after me when I go upstate. And to this day, it's so moving. And dear God, please look after Dr. Miller. She was in the most painful crucible of her life. And she was worried about the young doctor being safe. This sense of deeper love. I'm not aware of any of my colleagues who said, let's pray for one another. Let's make sure that God's source looks after one another. So she was in a spiritual prison house and she knew how to set herself free. This I heard time and time again, and it was very clear to me that a mental health minus the deep spiritual seat of being, which I've come to see now through 20 years of science is the, our awakened brain, our innate birthright. And when we put someone in the MRI in the state of where this woman um, connected with her higher power in the pantry, when we put someone in the MRI, what we see is that in a state of deep spiritual connection, a transcendent relationship, like we shared in the council visualization, We are loved and held, guided, and never alone. In the MRI, we see the bonding network, the same bonding network through which we're loved and held as children in our parents' arms or grandparents. We see a shift in the attention from a narrow top-down, I've got to have it, I've got to get it, does he love me, does she love me, to wow, bottom-up, ventral. The lights come back on in life in a whole new direction. The yellow door pops. We are loved and held, we are guided And finally, the parietal that puts in and out hard boundaries, the world, the world. We are material and distinct and unique and magnificently diverse, and we are white caps interbeing of one ocean, a unit of reality, spirit, loved and held, guided, never alone. The patients were telling me we are loved and held, guided, and never alone. And after 20 years of science, yes, we can look through the fMRI and point to where in the brain we are all endowed with the neuro docking station to feel, see, and know this truth. We have an awakened brain. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's amazing. From the specific studies, like what, what else were like the key findings that you were able to note from the work that you ultimately went and did over a number of years? I think it's very beautiful that all around the world we have the same innate awakened brain. There's one spiritual brain and we all have it. So the first thing we say is that, you know, whether I am Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Catholic, spiritual, but not religious, I say nature is my cathedral. We all have the same spiritual brain. Of course, there's individual difference as in our tendency towards music or math, and we can strengthen components, but the core awakened brain is universal. And so if we look around the world, we see that mirrored in cultural wisdom, faith traditions through sacred text. If we look around the world, whether it's China, India, the U.S., U.K., Europe, wherever we look, we can actually see from this innate common, meaning shared universal spiritual brain, common phenotypes, expressions that live at our seat of being, perceptions into reality. We all perceive that life itself is loving, that love is a force in the universe, like gravity or magnetism. Love is not just a feeling like happiness or determination. Love is to detect a force. We all know, second phenotype, that we are both distinct and one. We all have a parietal putting in and out hard boundaries, letting us know that we live in UK and we live in New York and we live in Nairobi and we live in Beijing. And you know what? We're part of one family of life, white caps on one ocean. We all know that we're interconnected one, unit of love. We have an on-ramp to transcendent awareness, We have an, which is practice, prayer meditation. We have an off-ramp, which is a moral code derived from our direct connection to the sacred, to ultimate reality, a way of living. What will my footprint be on the earth, on one another? So these are phenotypes, but the fifth is perhaps the most powerful because of all the phenotypes, it is the fifth that is most associated with cortical thickening of the awakened brain. And it's love of neighbor, radical, unconditional love of neighbor. 
Yes, love of our family and love of our spouse, but love of the stranger, love of all beings, relational spirituality. So the same neurodocking station through which we experience in meditation, in prayer, a deep connection to a loving, guiding universe is the same narrow seat through which we feel the presence of this transcendent relationship in our love, radical love for one another. And when we're good to each other, we strengthen the awakened brain. Here, the loving, devoted humanist and the evangelical come together as sharing the same awakened brain. Yeah, I love the the interconnected nature of like that that greater force. I think it's um, it's so true that you know, like you can take moments in time from everyday life and understand that when you when you take that moment to reflect and pause and look around, you realize just exactly how interconnected we are. And there's there's a much I believe there's a much bigger force than than what we initially can perceive. And you know, talking about like the the forces for example i think this is a nice kind of segue into your work with the u.s army because that equally um really resonated with me because bearing in mind typical age groups from the army are kind of 18 to 25 the rate of suicide is is quite high in that group and then equally epidemics of isolation depression all of the the negative connotations per se are intertwined with you know the the recruits and and the and the age groups and the demographics so i'm really encouraged to share your work that you've done within the army and some of like the key findings that's come out of you know for example just the, within a singular singular year the reduction in rate of um suicides like i found that absolutely fascinating the army to their tremendous credit, is data-driven. So they had read my first book, The Spiritual Child, which of course includes adolescence and emerging adulthood, making the case based on the science up to 2015 at the time that we are innately spiritual beings and with emerging adulthood, late adolescence, emerging adulthood, we can see through longitudinal twin studies that there is a surge, a hunger to know our ultimate meaning and purpose, that there's an existential call, a pain in our heart. We feel empty until we do the work of quest. And Peter, you said how beautifully you answered the call and traveled the world. In some way, we all need to go on a quest. What is my meaning, my ultimate meaning? What is my purpose, my ultimate purpose? This is hardwired. And with the nagging of the head, there's a matched hunger of the heart for the numinous, the true, the transcendent, and love, ultimate great love. We are built late adolescence, emerging adulthood to seek. And this process is a developmental depression. It is, we are dissatisfied. We are off balance. People often say, when I don't think about it, I get even more depressed. People who are 20, 22, 24. Well, the army has 300,000 18 through 25 year olds, and they get the same slice of emerging adulthood as does entry-level jobs and higher education and in all places where young adults arrive. And because, to their great credit, they were data-driven, they said, you know, we are launching, and to their, you know, vision, whole health and fitness. We want people to be fit of body. We want them to be fit of mind. And we want them to be fit of spirit. Using a data-driven approach, the Army launched the spiritual 
readiness initiative that every young adult, every soldier might be fit of body, mind, and spirit as there's physical fitness for the physical core. We need spiritual fitness for the spiritual core. And from top to bottom for three years, I collaborated very closely with the army going to 30 posts. We went to Fort Bragg. We went to Fort Jackson. We went to Hawaii and Alaska and Germany. We went all over to share the very same science that we discuss right now with leadership from the commanding general through the the brigade, battalion commanders, all leaders got it. So that as a lens, as an embedded skill, leaders could see the deep spiritual nature of their soldiers and in their professional expertise, use this roadmap of who we really are to create fit and ready soldiers, as well as in times of trauma, support post-traumatic spiritual growth. If we look at the data, trauma is actually a gateway to spiritual growth. The more trauma, the more growth, the more trauma, the more growth, until we get so flooded we need support to grow. And just as in the case of developmental depression, it is a foundationally spiritual process through which we move from trauma to post-traumatic spiritual growth. It involves, this was a study by Tedeschi and colleagues, four core components. We need to be honest in our heart, access the experience, put it in words and share it in a group. And then the most important fourth dimension is shine the light of spiritual awareness as we did at our table onto that very experience. What higher power, what to my ancestors who truly loved me, what God, spirit, do you say of this experience? And when we shine the light of our awakened awareness onto a trauma, there's a profound liberation. There is a reshuffling of meaning. And suddenly I knew we both were not to blame. And then I saw I could be forgiven. And then suddenly I knew that type of profound reshuffling of meaning speaks to a wiser, deeper resonance in our heart. And that is a foundationally spiritual process. So what the army did with that data was to pair up behavioral care with a universal chaplain so that there's spiritually integrated mental health and recovery. This is a model, the Spiritual Readiness Initiative, that can be used in any organization, in any business, in any school, and in our own lives. And in The Awakened Brain, I share stories of how the Army has used spiritual support for renewal. And I also share stories of how the chief of chaplains makes decisions in his life. He shares knowing in his own heart, his own awakened brain, in his own path, which helicopter do I get on now? And you know, everyone says go right, but my inner heart, my compass says go left. I'm getting in the helicopter on my left. And sure enough, in that helicopter are three soldiers on the edge of death saying, chaplain, can you pray for me? Chaplain, can you be with me? Chaplain. And in being in the helicopter on the left, he provided, if you will, emergency spiritual support, spiritual first aid, to three soldiers who in that case then lived. Chaplain Soljan, the chief of chaplains, the two-star general, calls that feeling within ourselves when we say yes, a divine appointment. And we all know that feeling where something just said to me, go, say it. Something just said to me, 
talked to this man on the bus. Something just said to me, call your friend, call your grandma. That something just said to me is a divine appointment. It is, we are a trail angel for someone in our lives. We are being in an open system. Our awakened brain is saying, hey, turn left. Yeah, we've talked quite a bit about trail angels. No, I definitely want to delve into that just a little bit more. But I guess there's also the data in which the work that you did for the army, like if you could share some of the key stats and data in respect to, you know, impact that you ended up driving. Yes. So, you know, the army was right rather than chase after. And and you've so generously shared, you know, narrowly screen people for suicide, suicide prevention. Let's get upstream and help people strengthen their spiritual core. So in times of despair, there's an inroad. They've been prepared more to connect with their spiritual compass. So the Army had as one of its major goals, ameliorating the diseases of despair and reducing the rate of suicide downstream. But again, rather than narrowly going with a program of suicide prevention, they got upstream, you know, from treatment to prevention to wellness to formation at the way at the trailhead. And indeed, after three years of the Spiritual Readiness Initiative, a data-driven approach to strengthening the spiritual core through all lines of leadership across all professions in the Army, the Army now has a 38% decreased rate of suicide in those posts where the Spiritual Readiness Initiative and Whole Health and Fitness were delivered. Whole health, physical, mental, spiritual. There is nowhere else in civil society that we've seen a 38% decrease in suicide amongst young adults. And there is no other branch yet. It will come, of course, in the military. It was the Army who launched spiritual support for the spiritual core. And those are astounding changes. And it is such a blessing. And it comes from the deep truth that you're sharing, which is suffering is a seat of spiritual quest, prayer, meditation, seeking trail angels, right action into a realization of a bigger life, an inspired life. You know, there's a good place to have an intensive quest, of course, is as a soldier. You encounter many, you encounter many challenges, many trials, and you got to dig deep. And the soldiers in the U.S. Army are prepared to dig deep. They have a strong spiritual core. And every one of us is born with that equipment to do it. We all have an innate endowment of an awakened brain. We just got to engage it. Yeah, for sure. And those numbers are, you know, they are astounding because when we look at the rising numbers of addiction, opioid addiction, um, numbers of depression and suicides, uh, I I believe suicide, the the rate of death is similar to that of by auto accidents. So it's it's pretty insane from a a statistical perspective that 38% reduction is just, you know, this is kind of best practice that we should be seeing implemented across the board. Absolutely. And it is best practice against the pandemic for Gen Z. The pandemic for Gen Z is not cancer or COVID and no longer auto accidents. The pandemic is the diseases of despair and death by suicide. And we have a solution. It's built in us and the Army's availed itself of what now is indeed a best practice. It's realization of our deep awakened brain. It is the realization of our spiritual core of the whole person. 
and this is for all of us, in the awakened brain, I talk about ways we can strengthen our natural awakened awareness. And we all have our path. It's not one size fits all, but we are strengthening what is one size fits all, which is the deep seat of spiritual connection, awakened awareness. I, I think there's one other point that's important, which is why is this the pandemic? You know, given that we have the diseases of despair, why is suicide and tragically homicide at levels we've never seen? And I think there has been a deeply felt um, erosion in our understanding of just how sacred we are. And just as you put so beautifully, how splendid life is on the other side. There's a world of difference between wanting the pain to go away and wanting to be dead. It is entirely different to want out of your life as it is, your inner being as it is, and wanting to be dead. Those are two very different things. And I think it needs to be said that no matter how much pain we are in, it is never acceptable to take our life. There has to be a hard stop there. It is not a legitimate option. You were born of source. It's really not up to us to decide that. Life's a gift. And I think, Peter, as you said beautifully, you don't know what you're going to miss. The other side is not getting or not getting what you got or didn't get. The other side is something you have not even imagined yet. Yeah, definitely. I think from the, you know, we talked earlier about the desire for, for things and, you know, I want that that new job, I want that new car. I guess like one of the biggest profound impacts I've seen in my own life is not the, the, the want for something, it's more so the to what end. To what end is that serving me? To what end is that serving my journey? To what end is that going to help others? I think when you kind of change the lens, you, you can see so much more clearly. One of you know we, we've talked a lot about trail angels. This this gives me the perfect opportunity to jump back in. I came across your your TED talk. I found it absolutely fascinating when you talked about um, the story of a spiritual child. I think bearing in mind what we've talked about throughout this podcast, we haven't had a, a real opportunity to talk about your unique story and y the journey that you went through. So, if you would be so kind to share your own experience in respect to the spiritual child, it'd be a great pleasure and honor to listen to it. So, you know, my husband and I had been married about five years. We'd been married fairly young when we were 30. We'd been married five years. And we said, okay, you know, he had the job he wanted and I had the job I wanted and we liked our friends and we we're happy with the lives that we had so-called built. And so we said, let's start a family. We want to have kids. Now we, you know, we felt we, it was time to choose to have a family. And so we planned a vacation. We went off to the Caribbean and we come back. And in a few weeks, it was clear, no baby. So I said, well, you know, who gets one for one? And we went to Sedona, which is a very spiritual place. And once again, we came back a few weeks later, no baby. And this started to go on and on at six months 10 months, a year, a year plus. And I started to get this haunting feeling, what if, what if we can't conceive? What if we can't be parents? And this was a horrible, creeping feeling. Um, but we persisted a year and a half, two years, nobody's coming. So I said, well, you know, we're young, you know, early, early 30s. Let's, let's just get a doctor's opinion. And we went in. I was checked out, and he was checked out. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with either of you. You, you, you can conceive, and um, we can help you make, make a baby. We can get you pregnant. 
And so we went to a very good doctor in our neighborhood. And after a series of IUIs, we weren't getting pregnant. And so we said, you know what, we're, this isn't aggressive enough. And we went to another doctor of sort of higher rates, which I had identified online. And this new doctor who did some I, um, IVFs, still no babies. Um, and now we were starting to be really quite horrified. What if there is absolutely no way that we can conceive? What if we will not be parents? And by about year three, three and a half, my husband was profoundly depressed. He said, life is hollow and meaningless without children. It doesn't matter anything that we've built or have. It, it is hollow and meaningless without children. So, you know, being a scientist, I just felt this compulsion to keep attacking the figures. And I found, you know, the group that had invented in vitro on sea urchins, you know, big celled sea urchins. And I thought, well, surely they can get us pregnant. And I kept pushing this forward and pushing this forward all the while with each failed in vitro starting to know in my heart that for us in our path, we were in the wrong office. I had an intuitive feeling. Often I was, you know, overshadowing it with, with the bark of, I've got to get it. I've got to get it. I've got to get the best doctor. I've got to find the best rates. Okay. It's in Boston. No, it's in Philadelphia. You know, but in my heart, there was a deep intuition that somehow we were barking up the wrong tree that for us, we were going about this the wrong way, but I couldn't, my fingers were sticky. I couldn't let go. I wanted to be a mother so much. My husband was so sad, but breakthroughs started happening. So for instance, um, after seeing this group, the inventors of in vitro in Philadelphia, we'd sort of treated ourselves to a night of, of bed rest. So I was supposed to stay immobile and out of solidarity and loyalty. My husband was by my side and we stayed at a nice hotel in Philadelphia. My husband grabbed the remote as he does each night, clicked it on, and there was only one show. And we couldn't believe it because it was an overpriced hotel and there was only one show on TV. My husband's kind of banging it on the nightstand. And what is the one show? It is a four-hour documentary of an orphan, a little street child living in a garbage dump. And this little boy, probably eight years old, through a translator, says, I don't care that I live in a trash heap. I don't care that I can't go to school. But it hurts so much to not be loved that I sniff glue to make the pain go away. All he wanted was love. And my husband turned to me and said, there's a child out there for us. Far too improbabilistic to have happened by chance. A four-hour documentary on a little boy who only wanted parents. And what made parenthood? was love and commitment that didn't need to be a child who looked like my husband and had his sense of humor. It didn't need to be a knockoff of us, an apple from our tree. It was it's a parent is one with unconditional love. And that opened the door to a series of beautiful alignments, trail angels, wide open yellow doors that guided us further and further towards becoming the type of people who were spiritually prepared to be parents who were loving, who were holding, who were guiding. So I'll share with you that my mother was one of our trial angels and she called and said, you know, I just want you to know, I know you've been thinking about becoming parents, trying to respect our boundaries. 
But the neighbor down the way, you know, Margaret Jones, she just adopted the most beautiful little boy from Russia, John Paul. And I just wanted to let you know that John Paul couldn't be more adorable and they adore each other. And just letting you know, bye. That was the message. So my mother said something she'd never said before, trail angel. My husband and I took the the cue and we visited a clergyman's daughter whose life's work was bringing together families. She found little babies, young children, children of all ages in Russia and Eastern Europe and found beautiful families. So we traveled to visit her and in her office were hundreds of pictures of families made whole with these beautiful children. You know, some of them were eight years old. Some of them were new babies and they were families going camping and families biking and I looked at these families, and for the first time, I felt tremendous joy and hope that we would be parents. And the clergyman's daughter leans over, Sonia, and she says, you've got to be honest with me. I want each of you to tell me what you really want in a child. And I said, well, Sonia, I don't care if this is a boy or a girl. I don't care what race this child is. Please, a child who can love And my husband sort of edges in with his shoulder and says, yes, all that, but kind of a girl. (laughs) And I said, but really, sort of leaning in with my shoulder, someone who can love. It was our first child who who can bond. So that was our meeting. And we walked out feeling for this first time a great hope. And within, you know, really just a couple days, I received synchronistically a call from another trail angel. It was my elder cousin. My name is Lisa Jane, and my cousin is Jane, Big Jane. Big Jane's about a decade older, and she's always told me the straight scoop, really, when it was even not particularly music to my ears about our family. She sent me, you know, pretty direct, (laughs) uncensored information in life. And this time she was calling, looking out for me once again. She said, little little cuz, little Jane, there's a healing ceremony out where I live. And I think you need to come. I know you've been looking for your child. I know you've been wanting to be parents. And I know you've been to a lot of doctors doing in vitro. I think you should come out here and join the Lakota. I have gotten their permission to bring you as their guest. So I cancel all my appointments for the entire week at Columbia. I get on a plane and I fly out to South Dakota join the healing ceremony and find myself in a very sacred place in a nipi, the sweat lodge, which is done by gender, the men in one, the women in another. And the woman who identified herself as the medicine's man's wife, the medicine man's wife led the ceremony. And as she guided us through a series of prayers and reflections, she asked each woman seated on the ground in the nipi, why have you come? For what have you come? And the first woman said, I have come because my son is 40, and I'm so worried for his family. He's not coming home. He's not been home in several weeks. The next woman says, my son, my son is 14, and he's starting to use drugs and alcohol, and I worry for him. Can we pray for him? We go around the circle until we finally get to Big Jane, who in this very um, most appreciated way spoke for me, which is, you know, my day job is speaking as a professor, and my big Jane spoke for me, which was really quite wonderful. She said, I am here with my cousin, Lisa, little Jane, 
and I'm wondering if we could help her. She is seeking her child. She and her husband have been on a journey. Could we help her find her child? And they all looked at me, every woman in the Anipi, and nodded and understood. And finally, for the first time, I knew I was in the right place. So then we prayed, and as the medicine man's wife led us in a prayer, there was a deep felt sense that we were praying for each woman in the Anipi and for the we, for the us, the collective. And whoosh, our prayer went up, and in my mind's eye, I could see it rise up through the Anipi, through the top with the smoke. And Peter, that night, that night, a call came from the other side of the world. It was on my machine in New York. I played it the following morning. We have found the Miller's child. I know Mr. Miller had wanted a girl, and there's many wonderful girls. But we have found the Miller's child, and it is a son. Praying for sons. After five years, it was that night that our son came. Our spiritual son had been found. It doesn't even need to be said, far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance. And so our son is named Isaiah for one world, one spiritual world, Lakota for those who helped us find him. But the story is not only a story of finding our spiritual child. The story is one of moving from radical control, how are we get pregnant, Let's, how are we going to conceive, to what is life showing me now? What is God, force, life revealing to us now on our journey? And it's really one of moving from narrow control and achieving awareness to an awakened path. And yes, in that is a type of parenting that is a love like I'd never felt. It was a tidal wave of love. I will share one more bit, which is uh, very shortly thereafter, his video came from Russia. There's this joyous little boy, da, 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 with his arm swung around the nurse, full of light, full of love. And my heart just soars. I fall in love with this little boy. And that night, we conceived naturally his sister, his spiritual twin. So how it's a beautiful story. Uh, like, thank you so much for sharing. How, how are both children these days? They are magnificent. They each have their own path. Um, you know, the spiritual twin, Leah, um, who made sure that Isaiah got here first, has always looked out for the family, is very um, responsible, and is on her own path. Um, she's someone like yourself, an artist, right? A creator. And Isaiah is pure love, deeply devoted to the family, um, so kind, still loves fellow living beings, all living beings. He worked in high school in a zoo. He talks to geese. He's connected to all life. And you know, one of perhaps the most beautiful things about our spiritual awareness is that it takes us places, you know, that was not what I wanted. That was about a billion times better than what I wanted. 
And the journey was not one I controlled. It was one of surrender and listening and dialogue. It was effortful. It's not like I zoned out. It was one of paying attention and knowing that we all walk a sacred path. And there were guides and there were trail angels. Everyone from my mother to the little boy who was orphaned to the clergyman's daughter, everyone, we're all working together. This is a symphony. Perhaps the finding in science that most embraces the symphony is that when we recover through despair to spiritual awakening, when we are then walking in dialogue with a guided sense of love and guidance being held, the spiritually engaged brain becomes sort of a new normal. We start to see life deeply in that way, day in and day out. Why of all days do I get to speak with you now, Peter? And who is it that, you know, in our family of listeners may share this forward to someone in need or take it in their heart in this beautifully orchestrated symphony? Well, the spiritually engaged brain gives off a wavelength, a very specific wavelength. We can pick it up with EEGs, and it's a wavelength which in its measurement is called alpha, high amplitude alpha. The spiritually engaged brain vibrates at high amplitude alpha, which is the same wavelength. It just goes by another name, Schumann's resonance, of nature. All the way around the earth, from the earth's crust up one mile, nature vibrates. Its constituent wavelength is the same, Schumann's resonance, as the spiritually engaged brain, which means that our deep felt sense of unitive, loving reality is mirrored in the measurement of the sameness with all life. The felt oneness is a real oneness. And in my view, this is what brings us into deep relationship with one another in the symphony and fellow living beings. We can be trail angels for fellow fellow living beings, of course. We live within this band of, I think, very sacred consciousness, loving, guiding, sacred consciousness that, yes, we pick up with our machines as high amplitude alpha. And this, if we might return to one of the core notions in our society, this is the Garden of Eden. We're living in it right now if we choose to dial in and be in this deep oneness with all life. Yes, it's definitely the choice. It's the choice between going through life and feeling almost unwhole in respect to emptiness, in respect to feeling that there should be more or society's against you or this this is happening to me, why me? And actually when you're willing to take these moments of challenge and lean into them and look for togetherness, look for optimism, look for your, you know, that they, they're there, look for your own trail angels, then... The world is a wonderful place and it's about finding hope and following the pathway that is being introduced to you through these periods of hardship. If I were to say there was one simple way to shift gears, it'd be to shift the conversation with life from what am I going to get to what am I going to give? Yeah, the, the the giving, that's what it's about, right? It's, a, it, you know, p- whether it's 
paying it forward in in wisdom and knowledge and experiences um or whether it is just the ability to actively listen to what people have to say and be part of the wider conversation i think you know like the the opportunities ahead of us are, are plentiful we just have to embrace them and you know when we do like everything benefits of ourselves our friends our family society as a whole we we end up into more of an interconnected um world than a one of um separation and i think like that's that's the hope really it's it's understanding that anybody listening to this that there's there's lessons here there's lessons to take on board there's wisdom to be shared and you know ultimately in your own experiences that you may be going through at this point in time you can take those learnings by reflecting upon the present moment by reflecting upon the challenge and asking yourself how or to what end or what can i do that's going to enable me to harbor my own awakened brain and when you're able to do that then everything becomes so much more clear beautiful peter yes of all the dimensions of spiritual life the one that most awakens and strengthens our awakened brain is love of neighbor and altruism so if i am really stuck and really lonely and really hurt i just need to push myself down to the coffee shop and do something a little something nice for someone go next door and do something a little something nice and i've instantiated i have enacted the interconnectedness which is the truth of who we really are my brain awakens it's it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you i think like before we close out i'd just like to finish with one last question if that's okay and and that would be to all our listeners that are tuning into this episode and looking for some means some insight some wisdom what would your kind of key thought or takeaway be with them to help them harbor more of an awakened brain i hope in your giving to others you start to feel the profound truth that you are loved and held you are guided and you are never alone not because it's a nice thought but because the universe is built that way our suffering is when we don't see it for the moment but we can reawaken we can all reawaken you are loved you are guided and you are never ever alone and it is never ever acceptable never to take your life you cannot do that because what you miss will be so great and so loving this is just the knock at the door for the next phase of a really beautiful connection with the deeper nature of life 100% there's there's always two doors there's always two realities but there's always choice take the yellow door thank you so so much for your time this has been an absolute pleasure thank you peter for your most meaningful work and for holding right here in the middle of our society our public square the voice of truth what our lives are really about so i honor you very grateful 
Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.